Thanks, Ben. Uh, if you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 23. We're back, we're back to the book of Genesis, finally. Uh, if you're not familiar with Ben, he is from Canada and is the third speaker at the missions conference. If that, that's why that, that got some chuckles. Um, <clears throat> last week when we were together, uh, Adam in our celebration service laid out a bit of, of who we are and, and what we do and why we do it here at LCF, that we exist to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we sort of mark that five, with five little characteristics. That, that means we're gospel-centered, humbly unified, mission-driven, pursuing holiness, and disciple-making. And in last week's context, Adam talked about what it looks like for our church to provide pathways toward pursuing holiness or toward sanctification here within the life of our church. Most of our Sunday mornings, in terms of just kind of the week in, week out preaching of God's word, are, are given over to reminding our hearts and sort of recentering our hearts on the gospel, that gospel-centered quality. When we talk about being gospel-centered, we, we simply mean that when a follower of Jesus looks at or thinks about life, we do so ever and always through the lens of the gospel. Again, gospel meaning... How is it that the life, death, resurrection, ascension, ruling and reigning of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, how is it that that uniquely impacts the way a follower of Jesus looks at all situations in life as opposed to someone who is not a follower of Jesus? I want to set this up gently this morning because toward that end, our topic this morning is delicate. And it's something that's difficult for us to talk about. It's something that we don't really talk about often in large settings like this. But to be gospel-centered means that we allow the gospel to inform how we think about all facets of life, which would include the end of it. There is good news, thanks to the gospel, when it comes to death. And that is what we're going to see this morning in our passage from Genesis. And so we'll see that as we work our way through what's, what's going to be a larger, maybe the normal chunk of Genesis this morning. And as, as we look at that, we'll reflect upon it a bit and what that means for us. And I want to acknowledge right from the beginning here <clears throat> that in even just surfacing the topic of death, I recognize that there are some within our congregation here this morning, watching online, listening via the podcast, who that is a sensitive topic because you've maybe very recently lost someone close to you, a family member, a loved one, a friend. There are others who that topic is sensitive because of your specific age and life stage. You are nearing uh, the end of life and just even your physical body is letting you know that that day is closer for you than it is for others or maybe it's particularly close to a parent of yours. Maybe you've recently come through the very unexpected loss of someone who, who death should not have been close to. And so I, I recognize all of the sensitivities that exist around that. And I also want to acknowledge right off the beginning, 
My words are probably going to be clunkier than you would like at times if you find yourself in one of those particularly sensitive spots. I will do my best for that not to be the case. Um, But I I also recognize that everyone who's in the midst of one of those seasons has particular sensitivities and soft spots, and I will do my best to avoid stepping on those. Um, But in the event that I err in that, uh, know that certainly was not my intent. I also recognize that when we talk about the topic of death, there are just certain general anxieties that exist for all of us. Some of us are so kind of contented with our present life that despite any amount of conversation about what the Bible has to say about the, the wonder and the beauty of heaven, it's, it's actually hard for us to believe that something could be better than the setup we currently have. And so the idea of death feels like robbery from what we have here. I also recognize that for some, the thought of those that we would leave behind when we die is overwhelmingly heavy and sad. For some, there's anxiety about the simple question of what awaits us in death, like the mechanics of what actually takes place the moments after we take our final breaths. For some, there's anxiety about this topic because you may have uncertainty about religion, Christianity, Jesus, the Bible's claims about death, judgment, heaven, and hell. We're not going to be able to answer all the questions that circle around all of those various anxieties. Instead, our passage is going to zero in on the faithfulness of God to his promises and to his people, even beyond the boundaries of their earthly lives. That's sort of like the space that we're navigating within this topic this morning. God's goodness and his faithfulness to his people is seen in and built upon and experienced not in timeframes defined by human lifespans, but in a timeframe that's defined by his eternal existence. I'm gonna say that again. God's goodness and faithfulness to his people is seen in not timeframes defined by an earthly lifespan, but timeframe that's defined by his eternal existence. So to say that another way, God's goodness to you is built not on the timeframe of your life. God's goodness to you is built on his eternal reality. And so that's, that's what we're going to work through this morning. The passage is quite large. I already mentioned that. We're going to all of 23, all of 24, and like half of 25. It's 105 verses. We're not going to read the entire thing this morning, which would be our norm, but we'll read enough in some large enough chunks to have a good sense of what's happening here at the end of Abraham and Sarah's lives. That's what we're going to see. And so we'll make four observations as we work our way through this, put those four observations together, and then do some reflecting on what that means for us today. So if you've got Genesis 23 open there in front of you, I'm going to start this morning by reading all of chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were all the years of her life. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham got up from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Heathites, I am an alien residing among you. Give me burial property among you so that I can bury my dead. 
And the Heathites replied to Abraham, listen to us, my Lord. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in our finest burial place. None of us will withhold from you his burial place for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down to the Heathites, the people of the land. He said to them, if you are willing for me to bury my dead, listen to me and ask Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf to give me the cave of Machpelah that belongs to him. It is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me in your presence for the full price as a burial property. Ephron was sitting among the Heathites. So in the hearing of all the Heathites who came to the gate of his city, Ephron the Heathite answered Abraham, no, my Lord, listen to me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the sight of my people, bury your dead. Abraham bowed down to the people of the land and said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, listen to me, if you please, let me pay the price of the field, accept it from me and let me bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham and said to him, my Lord, listen to me, land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed with Ephron and Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver that he had agreed upon are agreed to in the hearing of the Hethites, 400 standard shekels of silver. So Ephron's field at Machpelah near Mamre, the field with its cave and all the trees anywhere within the boundary of the field became Abraham's possession in the sight of all the Hethites who came to the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave of the field at Machpelah near Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of, the Can- in the land of Canaan. The field with its cave passed from the Hethites to Abraham as a burial property. Pause there. The passage opens by telling us that Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Sometimes the benefit of zooming out and working with a larger passage of scripture is that it lets us see bigger themes and it lets us see uh, what's repeated in those larger passages because repetition is often illuminating for us in the Bible. In those 20 verses, the words died, dead, bury, or burial property showed up 21 times. The chapter starts by telling you that Sarah died and then it refuses to let you forget it. All the way through, it's just a constant drumbeat. This woman of promise, she's no longer with us. Jump to Genesis chapter 25. We'll catch verses one through six here in a minute, but I'm gonna start reading in verse seven. Genesis 25, verse seven. This is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. He took his last breath, died at a good old age, old and contented, and he was gathered to his people. His son Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hethite. This was the field that Abraham bought from the Hethites. Abraham was buried there with his wife, Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son, Isaac, who lived near B. Lahai Roy. Same rhythm. This was the length of Abraham's life. He took his last breath. And then from there to the end of what we just read, the words dead, died, or bury appear four times in five verses. If you take the sort of euphemism gathered to his people, then it's five times in five verses. He took his last breath and died at a good old age, we're told, old and contented. 
There you have the account of the end of Abraham's life and Sarah's life. There's something beautiful in the phrase that's used to summarize Abraham's life. He died old and contented. Abraham's life had not been easy. It was full of challenges. It was full of turmoil. Some of that a result of his own foolishness and sinfulness. Some of it a result of just what God had called him to do and Abraham's faithfulness to try to do that. So God calls him to leave his homeland and all of his family and everyone that he knows and a guarantee of possessions passed on from his father and to follow God to be a resident alien somewhere else. And Abraham, to his credit, is faithful to do that. But then he twice offends a king by telling a half-truth about his wife, Sarah. He's got to go to war once to rescue his nephew from some trouble. He and Sarah make a mess out of things with Hagar to the point at which Abraham's got to send a son of his away to what one would assume is certain death out in the wilderness. I mean, at the very least, we ought to deduce that Abraham's contentment can't really be based on like his surface level circumstances. Well, his life was so smooth that he died happy. I think we can go one step further from there though and say that his contentment must be based on walking in genuine, consistent, faith-filled, though often imperfect, relationship with God. Abraham's contentment rests in the fact that he trusts in, relies upon, and lives in light of God and his promises. He's not been perfect in that. In fact, he's been comically bad at it at certain points. And as we've worked through the last 13 chapters of Genesis, we've tried to be honest about the places where he was comically bad at walking faithfully in relationship with the Lord. And yet, Genesis can tell us that he and presumably Sarah die in contentment not because of how these circumstances of their life unfolded, but it would appear because of the goodness of the God that they walked and lived in light of. There's no commentary given to that little phrase here in Genesis 25 that tells us that, but I think the narrative arc of Abraham's life helps us to see it. At this juncture, after Genesis 23, in the middle portion of Genesis 25 here, The main point is that Sarah and Abraham die. So observation number one. Even the people of promise are subject to death. God makes incredible promises to Abraham and to Sarah. And then they die. And if you were reading the Old Testament book of Genesis here as it was written, which is more or less like a novel. We don't read Old Testament books that way. We don't sit down on like a Saturday afternoon and cuddle up under a blanket next to the fire when it's negative four degrees outside and grab our copy of Genesis and start at the beginning and just read for three hours until we get to the end. We read in snippets. They're written in epics. And so often in reading in snippets, we miss or forget some of the really big picture of what it is that's happening. And so if you're reading Genesis as it's written, at this point you come upon the death of Abraham and Sarah and think to yourself, hold on, what about all these promises that God made to Abraham and how come it seems like not all of them have come true? Either God is a liar or there's got to be something else at play here. Abraham was supposed to have land. 
That doesn't appear to have happened yet. In fact, in this passage we just read, he introduces himself as an alien. I'm an alien here, but I want to bury my dead. He was supposed to be blessed. Maybe that's happened. It would depend on how your mental framework of blessed works. But when you read about Abraham, you might read and think, it seems like a pretty fortunate guy. Or you might read it and think, when I think of blessing, God has come up short here. He was supposed to be blessed so that he could be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. There would be nothing up to this point that would lead you to think everyone on planet earth has been blessed because of this man, Abraham. He's supposed to have nations that come from him. What's, where's that? He was supposed to have a son through Sarah who was unable to conceive. That's happened. Isaac. And if you were reading in the big sort of one swoop here, you would say to yourself, the biggest promise that God has made is that a seed of the woman, Eve, all the way back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is supposed to come and crush the head of the serpent who's brought sin into the world. And I thought it was supposed to be Abraham. And now, rather than crushing the head of the serpent, he has fallen to the same consequence of the serpent's sin that all the rest of humanity has fallen to, which is death. So what is happening here? And when we read in snippets, we're tempted to think from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25 that Abraham is the main character. But when we read as an epic, we can see that he's not. There's a rhythm to what happens in Genesis and a rhythm to what happens throughout the rest of the Old Testament and Scripture. People rise to the surface. God works in and through them toward the fulfillment of his purposes. They die. God remains. He continues to work through new people toward the fulfillment of his plans and his purposes. Adam, Eve, they die. No one's crushed the head of the serpent. Noah, he and his wife die. No one's crushed the head of the serpent. Noah's sons, some guy named Terah, Terah's son named Abraham, they've all come and gone, and yet God remains. So, observation number two, even the people of promise are subject to death, which then as we're reading Genesis, we also see that though the people of promise die, the God of promise is eternal. He has not gone anywhere, and we read in snippets, we think, well, Abraham's dead. The main character's gone. When we read in epics, we say, Abraham's dead, but the guy who's moving everything forward is not. So that must mean there's something more happening here. God promised Abraham long life. He's made good on that promise. In fact, we've just been told that explicitly. Abraham died at a good old age, old and contented. God promised Abraham a child through Sarah. He made good on that with Isaac. God promised Abraham land. Genesis 23 contains an account of Abraham acquiring a cave for Sarah to be buried in. And then we're told in Genesis 25 that Isaac and Ishmael bury Abraham in that cave alongside Sarah. What's going on there? Why record kind of the tedium of the back and forth between Abraham and the Heathites? What would have been culturally normal at this time would have been for Abraham to go back to his homeland to bury Sarah. You went, you went back to wherever your people were from and you laid to rest there. 
that's not entirely unfamiliar to us. It's still relatively common um, that like a family would have a particular cemetery where when I pass, my family is buried here. That's where, that's where I will be buried. This is similar to that. But Abraham doesn't do that. He doesn't go back to Ur in order to bury Sarah, knowing that that's where he will be buried. The whole passage introduces with Abraham was a alien residing among the people of Canaan. He was a Gur. Your translation might have said a sojourner. It might have said a stranger. It might have said resident alien. And yet he wants to bury Sarah in the place where he's an alien. Why? Well, because God promised Abraham that this land, Canaan, would be theirs. And Abraham says, this is my homeland. None of it's mine, but God made this promise. And our lives might be coming to an end, but I actually believe that this is the land that God is going to give to us. That's why he's so insistent on paying the 400 shekels. What's Ephraim say? What's 400 shekels? between you and me. And Abraham's like, I agree, let me pay you. Ephraim says it as a like, you don't owe me any money. Abraham says it as, I will buy this land. Why? Because this is a down payment on the promise that God made that he is going to give this land to me and my descendants for generations afterward. And what does Abraham understand? I might be dying, but God's gonna make good on these promises. God promised that Abraham would have nations that come from him. Look at the two little passages that surround Abraham's death in Genesis 25. Starting in Genesis 1, Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him, and then you get a list of names. And then they pick up one of those, verse 4. Midian's sons were, and you get another list of names. Verse 5. Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. And while he was still alive, he sent them eastward, away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Jump down to verse 12. These are the family records of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's slave, bore to Abraham. These are the names of Ishmael's sons. Then you get a list of names. God is making good on the promise that nations would come from Abraham. He's doing that through the sons of this woman named Keturah. He's doing that through the sons of Ishmael, who he had with Hagar. But notice that Abraham understands the land promise is tied to Isaac. So he actually sends the rest of those sons away from the land of Canaan because it's gonna be through Isaac that this land is given to us. It's going to be through Isaac eventually that we're going to see nations come from Abraham. And it's worth noting here that though God does not condone or approve of our sin, in his sovereignty, he's able to use even that which comes about as a result of our sin, these other relationships Abraham has, toward the fulfillment of his plans and promises. There are nations coming from Abraham. And then Genesis 24, sandwiched between the death of Sarah and the death of Abraham, gives us this zoomed-in picture of how all of this is going to start to come about as the book of Genesis goes forward. It's coming through Isaac. And what happens before Abraham dies is that Isaac gets 
married. The big promise doesn't appear to be on the near horizon yet. The head of the serpent has not been crushed. So either that's going to happen later in Isaac's life or it's going to have to come through Isaac and thus through Abraham in some other way. So we can make a third observation here. The people of promise die. God is eternal. And God fulfills his promises beyond the earthly time periods of his people. He's going to give land to Abraham but not in the time period of Abraham's life. He's going to bring nations to Abraham, but that's going to play out not in the time period of Abraham's life, which means he will crush the head of the serpent, but that's not going to play out in the time period of Abraham's life. Genesis 24. What happens here with Isaac? I'm going to read about the first third of Genesis chapter 24. If you've got it open, you can follow along. Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household who managed all he owned, place your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a son for my wife from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family to take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land you came from? And Abraham answered him, Make sure that you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give you this land to your offspring. He will send his angel before you, and you can take a wife from my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me, but don't let my son go back there. Pause really quickly. Why is Abraham so insistent on that? Canaan is the land that is supposed to be theirs. If Isaac goes back to the place where this wife comes from, he's abandoning the place that God said would be theirs. So he's very insistent. Isaac has got to come here. He can't go there. Pick it back up, verse nine. So the servant placed his hand under his master Abraham's thigh and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Pause one more time. They're doing pinky promises in the ancient style. That's what the whole like hand under the thigh thing, like what's going on there. Someday, thousands of years from now, when someone picks up like some novel that has survived and there's pinky promises, they're gonna be like, okay, we gotta explain why they're doing the pinky thing, right? They're doing the thigh thing. They're making like a promise. I will do this for you, Abraham. They're doing thigh promises. Okay, verse 10. The servant took 10 of his master's camels and with all kinds of his master's goods in hand, he went to Aram Naharim, to Nahor's town. At evening, the time came when the women came out to draw water. He made the camels kneel beside a well outside the town. Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I'm standing here at the spring where the daughters of men of the town, uh, where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink. And who wants drink and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, 
coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had been intimate with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jug and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me have a little water from your jug. She replied, drink my Lord. She quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they have had enough to drink. She quickly emptied her jug into the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. She drew water for all his camels while the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. As the camels finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and for her wrists, two bracelets weighing 10 shekels of gold. Whose daughter are you? He asked. Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She also said to him, we have plenty of straw and feed and a place to spend the night. Then the man knelt low, worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness to my master. For as, as for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Scan with me the rest of the way. Because what happens from here is that they go to a man named Laban and they recount everything that's just happened. But notice what doesn't get left out. Verse 31, you who are blessed by the Lord, Laban says. Verse 35, the Lord has greatly blessed my master, says the servant. Verse 40, the Lord before whom I have walked, that's from the servant. Verse 42, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will only make my journey successful. Verse 44, let her be the woman the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Verse 48, then I knelt low, worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who guided me on the right way to take the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. And then Laban responds, this is from the Lord. Genesis 24 refuses to let you ignore who makes this whole thing happen. Genesis 23 refused to let you ignore that Sarah had died. Genesis 24 refuses to let you ignore that the Lord is the one pulling the strings on everything that's happening here. At the end of the chapter, verse 67, we're told that Isaac brought her, that's Rebecca, into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and took Rebecca to be his wife. Isaac loved her, and she was comforted after his mother's death. Rebecca and Isaac take the place of Sarah and Abraham as the matriarch and the patriarch of God's people. That's what's being symbolized there at the end of the chapter. So I think we can make our last observation. Beyond the time spans of human lives, God providentially provides for the fulfillment of his promises. I'll make sure... Isaac gets a wife and I'll make sure they end up in Canaan and I will make sure that all of my promises come to pass. God is being sure that though the fulfillment of his promises is not bound to Abraham's lifetime, that he's providentially, sovereignly provided for how they will be fulfilled. And that's gonna happen through Isaac. And so if we're back to reading Genesis like the big narrative epic that it is, we would say, well, I guess we're watching Isaac now. Abraham's gone. Isaac's taken his place. 
And so I guess that's who God's going to work through to bring all these promises to pass and to ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And then look at how verse 19 picks up in chapter 25. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. That little phrase has marked off for us sort of the transition points in the book of Genesis. It started all the way back in Genesis chapter two. These are the records of the heavens and the earth. And then it's shown up as the funnel has narrowed down to exactly where is it going to happen that the serpent crusher is going to come. These are the records of Adam. These are the family records of Noah. These are the family records of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These are the family records of Shem specifically. These are the family records of Terah and all of Abraham's life fell inside there. Now it's, these are the family records of Isaac. That's where your attention is now supposed to shift. God's gonna be faithful to his promises. Hasn't happened in any of those lifetimes. Maybe it's this one, Isaac. At the very least, Genesis is pointing us to the fact that that's the man now through whom the serpent crusher will eventually come. So let's put the whole thing together. The people of promise are subject to the consequence of sin, which is death. Though the people of promise die, the God of promise is eternal. And that means that the promises of God are not bound to our human lifetimes. And as time unfolds, God sovereignly and providentially provides for the fulfillment of that which he plans and purposes and promises. And so I think we can put all that together and land here, that God's promises persevere because they rest on his permanent presence. They were made to Abraham, but they did not rest on Abraham. The promise about the serpent crusher was made to Eve, but the promise did not rest with Eve. It rests with God. And as we land in that place, I think we can take away some really good news. Put all of our narrative truths here in Genesis together with the gospel truth of Jesus. Brother or sister in Christ, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises. He's where they all come to a head. And so Abraham is the person of promise that we've been looking at up to this point, but Jesus is the ultimate one. And now anyone who's been saved by God's grace through faith in him, you are God's people now. You are the people of promise now. And for all the talk that we do about eternal life available by God's grace through faith in Jesus, that does not mean that you will escape the reality of physical death. Every human being, saved by God's grace through faith or not, is going to face the reality of their body giving out on them at some point. But Jesus has bridged the gap between earthly life and eternal life. He's the only one who stands with his feet on both sides of that gap. And by God's grace through faith in him, all these promises made to Abraham are being fulfilled for all of God's people. That means all of God's goodness is available to you, follower of Jesus. And we often think to ourselves, that's gotta happen in my lifetime. If God is going to be good to me, it's going to happen right here, right now, 
in this place. But what are we seeing in Genesis? He's not bound by your earthly time span. He will be good to you and faithful to all of his promises, and that will happen according to his eternal reality, not your earthly one. And yet the fact of the matter is that the end of life does not mark the end of God's goodness to his people. God is overwhelmingly good to his people and that faucet on that goodness does not turn off when you take your last breath. In fact, I think what we are going to find is that when we die, the faucet of that goodness is actually a fire hydrant. And in our death, we will be overwhelmed by the goodness of God. In eternity, God is good to his people judicially. What I mean by that is God is going to be just in his judgment of all people. And those who have been saved by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, when you stand in your moment of judgment, you will be overwhelmed by the goodness of God as you are declared innocent because of Christ rather than guilty because of your sin. And what you knew as like a dripping faucet in your life that your sin had been paid for will come rushing over you like a torrent from a fire hydrant as you stand there and hear yourself pronounced innocent. Ah, the goodness of that. It didn't turn off when you died. It's like all of a sudden it exploded upon you at your passing. He will overwhelm you with goodness in that moment. But he will be just about all things. And so all that was wrong in this world He's going to be just about. All that was broken, he's going to make right. And so it's not just that he will be personally judicially good to you. He's going to be practically judicially good about everything in perfect measure. Oh, the goodness of that is going to overwhelm. All the stuff we say at funerals that feel like platitudes... When we're talking about a person who by God's grace has been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, we're not offering platitudes. I mean, we're talking about rock solid truths. And so when we're at a, a person's funeral who had placed their faith in Jesus, staked everything upon him, been saved by God's grace, and we talk about that person seeing the face of God and being welcomed into his presence, well done, good and faithful servant, that's not nice stuff we say to make living people feel better. That's articulating the goodness of God against the backdrop of death. That goodness is overwhelming. In eternity, God is good to his people relationally. Here's what I mean about that. You get eternity with him. You get eternity in a place that is entirely centered upon him. Having put right all that sin made wrong, having banished Satan and sin into the pit of fire, if you're someone who's not biblically familiar, and that sounds like a weird phrase, 
read the end of the book in Revelation, and it'll make it clear-ish. God will, God will dwell with his people in the ultimate returning of all things to their pre-fall state, which means you will relate to him with perfect oneness because there's no longer any sin to stand between you and him. And for all of the ways that we can try to think about that, we can try to say to ourselves, oh, well, in in heaven, there will be no sin and we'll, we'll be, you know, finally and fully made perfectly right with God. We get drips and drops of that as our finite minds try to picture what that looks like. When you die, the fire hydrant of that goodness will just pour over the top of you. I mean, I don't think the soul contained in this finite human body could possibly even like contain all of the joy and the wonder of what that reality is going to be like. That's how good it's going to be. In eternity, God is good to his people communally. In the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth, the fulfillment of that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, right? There will be a people in eternity, in heaven, new heaven, new earth, gathered around the throne from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And on this side of eternity, we say to ourselves, how could you get all of those people together with all of their differences and that possibly be a good thing? Well, with sin removed, that's gonna be the most glorious gathering of people. an overwhelming goodness that's going to help us see the full beauty and the diversity of who God is as a kaleidoscope of image bearers are brought together forever in perfect relationship with one another, in perfect relationship with God. Do you remember what it was like the first time you went back to in-person worship after COVID? And like, you'd been trying to do the worship thing at home with like line deal and you got back into a room of people and they were all singing together like do you remember how like emotionally overwhelming that was okay now try to picture that as you take rooms like this full of people singing the praises of God you remove all the sin you gather together people from every tribe every nation and every tongue washed clean by the blood of Jesus, and you put the sun on the throne in the middle of the room, and the singing starts. I mean, imagine what that's going to be like. Oh, the goodness of that. I stood in this room, and I wept the day we got back together. I'm going to stand in that room, and I don't know how anyone outside of angels are going to be singing. In eternity, God is good to his people physically. By that I mean new bodies, glorified, no longer subject to the decay of this world. Again, the stuff we say at funerals when grounded in Jesus is absolutely true. When someone has lived the last season of their life with unthinkable physical suffering that just feels like it plagued and tormented them all the way up until their final breath and we get to the funeral for that person who by God's grace has been saved by Jesus Christ and we talk about them being released from that. 
We're not just saying that to make ourselves feel better. I mean, that person got new glorified body. Look, debate about the mechanics. Did it happen instantly? Are they asleep for a while? Do they know they're asleep for a while? When did, write all of that off. That person's getting a new glorified body. It's not subject to the decay and to the boundaries of this particular body. I mean, if you get to the end of your life and you have suffered physical challenges, mental challenges, whatever the case might be, imagine the goodness when all of a sudden you're given a new body that faces none of those challenges, not just in that moment, forever. My goodness, if that is overwhelming. Last in eternity, God is good to his people materially. I don't know all the specifics of this, but Jesus tells us not to lay up treasure here on earth where moss and rush destroy, but instead to lay them up in heaven. What's the implication? They don't destroy there. We're told in the epistles that we'll receive crowns of glory. I don't know exactly what that means. But God's gonna be good to me judicially relationally, communally, physically, and then he's going to give me stuff? Like, I did nothing. In fact, I, I spent my human time span in, in earthly, strictly earthly terms, mostly letting him down, fumbling my way forward, trying to live faithfully, I take my last breath. I go to be before him. I'm declared innocent and it's overwhelming. I'm given perfect relationship with him and it's overwhelming. I'm ushered into this body of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue and it's overwhelming. I'm given a new glorified body and it's overwhelming. And then he says, here, have some stuff. I mean, the goodness of that. It's for all those reasons that Paul in Philippians 1 can say with such confidence, for me, to live is Christ, so that's a good thing, but to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, he says. So I want to end with this. I mentioned some of the anxieties that we might have around the topic of death. One that I didn't mention at the start that might be a real thing for you is that you feel like death, whether of a loved one or of yourself, is actually God failing you. Whether the circumstances whereby that happened or the thought of it in the future, like God let me down. My encouragement to you as pastor, nope. Because his goodness to you was not bound to the time span of your earthly life. And the goodness that you experienced in this earthly life, what a gift. A gift that you, I think, from the other side of eternity will look back on and see was actually larger than you comprehended it to be while you were walking your days here. But even that gift, I think, is going to pale in comparison to the goodness that he lavishes upon you 
in death. And for those of you who have recently lost someone that you love or that is close to you, you're still trying to navigate the hurt and the heartbreak of that. Or those of you who sit here this morning and you've got a loved one close to you who is facing final days, you know, soon. And you think, how could God fail me? If that person has been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, when they pass, they're not gonna feel like God failed them which means that even in the middle of all of our grief, as we mourn their absence in our lives, we've we've got to be gospel-centered enough to remind ourselves that God has not failed them, nor has he failed us. He has been overwhelmingly good to them in Christ. We sing a song every so often here. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's in like the heavy rotation, but it's one that we sing enough that it's familiar to us. It's called The Goodness of Jesus. And it, it has a little line in the chorus or kind of like the tag that says, uh, oh, the goodness, the goodness of Jesus, satisfied he is all that we need. May it be come what may that I rest all my days in the goodness, the goodness of Jesus. Uh, brother or sister in Christ, would it be come what may uh, that we're able to rest even in our very last day in the goodness of Jesus? Because we can be certain that every day after that will be full of only goodness. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing.